Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Women's Scholars and Professionals podcast. My name is Anne Boyd, and I'll be your host. We at Women's Scholars and Professionals are here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. What does it mean that humans are made in the image of God, and how does this knowledge affect the way we live? Author and professor Carmen Joy Imes joined us on the podcast to discuss her recent book, Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters. Carmen talks with us about the way theology impacts our daily lives, the unique dignity of humanity, and what we can do to honor God's image in ourselves and in our life together. Longtime readers of The Well will recognize Carmen's name from the many articles and prayers that she has published over the years with us, and so it was a special delight to have a chance to talk with her about her work as a professor and how the different pieces of her life fit together in addition to her new book. And if you listen to the end of the podcast, you'll hear an excerpt from our conversation in which Carmen offers a practical strategy that she and her family employed to foster connection during some of their busiest years with young children. So, let me tell you a little bit more about her. Carmen Joy Imes is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Biola University. A graduate of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, she is the author of Bearing Yahweh's Name at Sinai, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, and the editor of Praying the Psalms with Augustine and Friends. She is a member of the Evangelical Theological Society and the Society of Biblical Literature and serves on the board of directors of the Institute for Biblical Research. Carmen and her husband, Daniel, have three children and enjoy camping, hiking, and playing pickleball. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. I want to talk about your new book, Being God's Image, but first I would love to hear about your life as a professor. So can you start by talking a little bit about your path into academia and biblical studies and maybe just what your journey has been like along the way? Sure. I would say that as a kid, I was very much interested in the academic life. That is, I love to learn and I loved to to try to get good grades and I love to try to be the top of my class, but I never imagined myself being a teacher. And it wasn't until I was in college, there were kind of two things that converged. One was a class that I took called Intro to Church Ministries that basically was a class on pedagogy. And it just captivated me. It just made my brain come alive. And I thought, I want to, I want a room full of people to try this stuff out on. This sounds so neat. And through conversations with my mom, realized that she had seen this in me all along and just never said anything because it seemed so obvious. Wow. And I couldn't see the forest for the trees. I was busy thinking about all kinds of other 
international exploits that I could be part of. Um, but teaching just wasn't one of those things that occurred to me. It was too close to notice it. Um, but the other thread that kind of came together was just the tremendously formational role my professors had in my own life. And I think there's something really special about the college years and you're emerging as an adult, you're leaving home usually and and beginning to question things about your past and wondering who you're going to become. And so many major life decisions are made in those years. And so having professors right there for me to help me decide, did, did my call to missions preclude this particular dating relationship? Or would it be okay to date someone who didn't have a similar call? Um, is this is this dating relationship the one that should become marriage or are there problems or red flags? And um, how do I just navigate family trauma, family difficulty um, that, that kind of all erupted while I was in college? I walked through health concerns and my professors were just there with me. So yes, we talked about biblical studies and we talked about what we were learning in the classroom, but they also just walked alongside me in life. And I thought, this is cool. I want to do that with students and then kind of reverse engineered it and realized, oh, you have to get a master's and even a doctorate to be able to do what these people are doing for me in terms of mentoring. So it was like a, a newly discovered love for teaching and then a love for the mentoring role that professors had in my life. And so it wasn't a short uh, straight line between that, those realizations and being a professor, uh, because I did sense a call to missions. And I did marry the man who didn't have quite as strong a call to missions, but a willingness. And we did go overseas and then came back and and I pursued schooling. So I did make it here eventually, uh, but the road was long and winding and included having babies and uh, moving for missions and for other reasons. So here I am doing what I feel like I was born to do. That's such a great story. And it's, it's, it is similar to many stories I hear of these winding paths mm. that we yeah. go on. Um, yeah. So what have been for you, some of the gifts of life in the Academy and mm. some of the challenges? Mm. Mm. I was just thinking today, as I was tidying up my office for this conversation it's and the stacks <laughs> of the stacks of books that accumulate so fast. And I just, the latest one that I just got in the mail is this big hefty dictionary of Paul and his letters um, from IVP. And I just, I, I think I was just marveling at how did I get to the place in life where people send me free books right. <laughs> and just the, just the riches of learning that's available at my fingertips. There's just like books, scads of books behind me. And I feel like I have all this, all these riches right here accessible when I have questions. So that's a gift. Um, it's a gift to do life together with other colleagues who love the life of the mind and are, are thinking and learning and writing. It's a gift to have students in the classroom who bring their whole selves to the work and ask questions and share their curiosities. I learn so much from student questions and from reader questions. I've, um, I have a launch team for my new book and we just had a Facebook live last week where launch team members could ask me questions about the first three chapters. And it, I just learned so much from the way people ask questions. It, it pushes me to understand things better myself and to articulate them more effectively. 
So I feel like I'm in a place where I'm continually being sharpened and in, in the most gracious of ways. It's not, it's not, I don't feel beaten down. I just feel spurred on. And that's been so, so fun. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Do you, I mean, are there any challenges that come to mind that, um, I don't know that you've overcome or that you're wrestling with currently? There have been different challenges at different seasons of my academic journey. Uh, the challenge during my during my PhD was that our family had, we were juggling a full-time PhD with my husband's full-time work in missions and raising three kids who were in preschool, elementary, and middle school. Mm-hmm. So we had three, we had four different schools between the five of us. And so all those schedules, and we had such a precisely organized schedule of events for every day of the week. Every 15 minutes was spoken for and everything had to be super intentional. There was a sense of synergy, but it was also a sense of intensity that didn't let up Mm -hmm. um, for three full years. And then, and then, and then we took kind of a breath and moved away and I finished from a distance and we didn't have to be quite so intense. Um, So the challenge then was uh, staying on task I would say the challenge now is this wonderful challenge that comes when people actually take you seriously and they appreciate your work and everybody wants a piece of you. Right. <laughs> and so um, I I follow a writing coach named Kathy Mazak and I started off in her Facebook group and learned from her and now she's moved off of Facebook, but I still get her emails. And she had a recent, I think, YouTube conversation where she was talking about she she helps women craft an academic mission statement which I did years ago and like okay this is going to help me decide what to do with my time how to say yes when to say yes and when to say no to opportunities if you have a clear mission statement then it makes the decision making process easier but then I reached this point and she was talking about it in her YouTube channel um where the flood of invitations that I'm getting are almost all on mission Yeah. Where it's like, because now people know me for the work that I've done. And so they ask me to do things that relate to the work that I've done. And I can't possibly say yes to all of it. And so there's a new challenge now to hone in the mission statement more specifically, or to have different parameters in place for making those decisions. I know not everybody listening is in a place where they're overwhelmed with requests. And maybe you'd like publishers to be knocking on your door and asking you to do things or to serve on committees or to um, contribute to projects. But when you when you stick with it and keep doing the work, the time will come when you're being asked to do more than what you can do. And, and so that's been my most recent challenge. And I've, I've, figured out a new life hack thanks to one of my colleagues here who said, oh, I don't make my own decisions. I have a team that makes them with me. And so he meets with his team once a month and brings all the invitations. Here's what I'm being asked to do. And they decide with him what to do and why. And it really helps cut through some of the maybe misplaced sense of obligation or relational connection or guilt or or even pride, like, look, they asked me to do this thing. And I decided right then and there, I need that. So mm-hmm. I I have a colleague here who I now run 
just about everything by him. We don't necessarily run. I don't necessarily have to ask him for permission to do a podcast interview. Um, I do those enough that we have a good rhythm, but, um, but a writing project or a speaking engagement that takes me away from home. That's outside of normal hours. I run all of those by him and it's been so helpful because he just looks at me and goes, I don't need to be the one to do that. Carmen, other people can do that. Yeah. <laughs> And it just helps be, um, it helps take the pressure off of the decision-making. Yeah. I think, you know, even if, um, listeners aren't in a place where people are banging on their door to get them to contribute, um, with their work, I think that so many of us can really relate to that sense of having lots of important things that we could do that, that, you know, important opportunities and how trying yeah. to decide between those. Yeah. We are know? finite. Yes. <laughs> we, we can't do it all. Right. So yeah. Do you know the book Essentialism by Greg McEwen? No. I can send you a link to this book. I can, if we yeah. put this in, I'll put it in the show notes, but it's, um, it came out probably five years ago or something. And mm-hmm. I think he's a person of faith, although he doesn't really talk about it a lot in his book, but his whole book is about this very thing that you get to a point when instead of um, finding, having to decide between um, bad things or good Mm. things, it's not that you're spending a lot of time watching, you know, channel surfing, watching mindless TV. You have a lot Mm. of good opportunities that you're choosing between. And he talks about the struggle and the discipline of having less and choosing the things that are really only like nines Mm -hmm. and tens, which it's it's very interesting. Yeah. 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 I think that's the journey that I've been on. And it's, it, there is a, there's definitely a layer of spiritual formation. That's part of it. You know, I I mentioned pride. It feels good to be wanted and to be asked to do things. And, and yet you don't want to do something because it makes you look good. You want to do something because it's the work God's calling you to do. And I tell my students that if you have more on your plate than what you can accomplish, then you have either said yes to something that wasn't an invitation from God, or you have, you're doing your work with such a degree of excellence that it's detracting from other things God's called you to do. And so that's the challenge for me continually is, is, okay, what in this did I take on without the invitation from God to do it? And, and who, in some cases by, by saying yes and doing it myself, I'm actually robbing someone else of the opportunity to do it, uh, to do that work or that, that project. So I'm, I'm trying to be more sensitive to that and quicker to recommend others when, when I get asked to do something, to give the name of another woman in academia who might like that opportunity, who's not getting lots of knocks on the door. All right. Well, I, I really want to talk about your book. So let's let's turn to that. Let's talk about your book, Being God's Image. And this book is a companion to your previous book, Bearing God's Name, which I also mm-hmm. loved. I really appreciate the way you empower the reader to understand the historical context of scripture mm-hmm. and discover its relevance in our own lives. So for those who haven't read your work before, can you say a little bit about how these two books work together and why you wrote them? Sure. Yeah. The first book, Bearing God's Name, came out of my dissertation work at Wheaton 
I really wanted a topic that my family could get behind and understand what mom was doing. That was important to me. Um, not all dissertation topics are like that, as you know. Um, and when I landed on this topic, I knew that it was one that my family would be excited about. So so I explored the command in the Ten Commandments, the command not to take the Lord's name in vain. And it was a re-exploration of it, re-examination that takes it out of the realm of speech. There's no actual speech-related words in the sentence, and yet we usually think of that command as prohibiting speaking God's name in some context or some for some purpose. But I became convinced that it wasn't speech-related, that it was much broader than that, that that at Sinai, God had put his name on the people of Israel to claim them as the people who belong to him. And so it was as if they had an invisible tattoo. And so the command is telling them not to carry that name in vain, not to not to claim to belong to Yahweh, but then not live in, in uh, alignment with that identity and vocation. So that was my project. As I was working on the dissertation, I kept feeling like the church needs this message. This is not just a message for academics, although I think it matters for academics. And I hope commentaries start to get this one right. And we can kind of move past some of the misunderstanding that I think has plagued the history of interpretation. Um, but but average Christians need this message. And so my plan all along was to try to rewrite it for lay people. And InterVarsity Press took a chance and gave me the opportunity and let me do that. And so I was really grateful. And about the week, the week after that one came out, I was lying in bed one night and all of a sudden it came to me what the next book needed to be. I, I pictured the cover. Oh, it needs to be green. There needs to be a tree on the front and it needs to be called Being God's Image. Why Creation Still Matters. Like it just came to me. So I actually proposed it with the cover design in mind and um, and part of why I thought of it was because many people, when they heard me talk about bearing God's name, would say things like, oh, that's kind of like how we bear the image of God, right? Like humans are God's representatives. And you're saying Israel is God's representative. So isn't that kind of the same thing? And my response was, every human being is the image of God, but only the covenant people bear God's name. So they're similar that both roles are representational. Both, both have identity, identity and vocation as part of the package, but they're not quite the same in scope. So I have maybe two pages where I talk about that in Bearing God's Name, uh, but I, I realized we needed a fuller explanation or people might benefit from a fuller explanation of what does it mean to be human? Yeah. What, what is this vocation that all humanity shares as God's image? And in the process, I came to decide that bearing God's image is not the right way to talk about it. Although lots of people talk about bearing the image of God, I became convinced that that's a misleading way to say it because we are the image. It's our identity. It's not something extra that is added onto us yeah. that can be lost. So I try to consistently talk about being God's image rather than bearing. Yeah. Yeah. That, that dis distinction comes across really clearly in your book. And that was a great way of explaining it. So um, I noticed that there were a few times in your book where you reiterate that theology matters mm. or theology has consequences, and that mm. seems to kind of really be the backdrop to all of your work. So can you unpack yeah. that for our listeners a little bit to help us understand what's at stake? 
Sure. So yeah, theology being the study of God in its kind of primary mode, the study of who God is and what are God's purposes in the world, but then more broadly construed as encompassing um, the the doctrines we hold, the decisions we make about ultimate questions of meaning um, for humanity, for the church. What what is what is all this? What is it for? And the the way we answers the answer those questions has such practical implications for how we live our lives. If I believe that God is so sovereign that humans have no free will or no opportunity to impact the world in any way, then that might make me hang back and not be very active, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. If I believe that Jesus isn't going to come back unless every single person on the planet hears about him first, then that's going to motivate me to go out and tell people, right? So our theology, the way we navigate these questions uh, has practical implications. And I think that really hit me about the image of God, that the way we think about this topic the way we construe what it means to be human has enormous implications for how we treat people and how we structure our institutions and our churches so that people can flourish. And I I feel like with some, what feels like minor course correction in grammar of how we talk about the image of God at the beginning, we have this uh, sort of the spectrum that fans out into lots of different areas and and has makes a powerful difference. Yeah, that that's a great way of saying it. And um, I think what I hear you, what I think I hear you saying too, is that often we may have beliefs or some assumptions about theology that are that mm-hmm. go unexamined, and that you're yep. really inviting yep. us to examine those in yeah. in this book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think about if we wanted to get from here to the moon in a rocket and we climb on the rocket and we blast off, we have to be absolutely sure that we're in the right at the right angle when we launch. Otherwise, we're not going to hit the moon. Right. The Mm -hmm. moon is big, but like you can be one degree off and be way wide of the moon by the time you get there. And so that's where I I hope what this book does is help the course correction at the beginning. Let's get aimed in the right direction. And then let's get started. And I hope that people will get some momentum and begin to think about what are other ways we could live this out yeah. in all these different contexts. Well, starting at the beginning um, is a good way for us to move to our next our next topic, which is the very beginning of your book. The mm-hmm. first chapter begins with this sentence. You write, it's dangerous to start a book talking about Genesis 1. which made me laugh when I read it. (laughs) And as I've read your work, I've really come to see that you're very brave about wading into these waters, these first uh, chapters of Genesis. So what compels you to tackle these chapters and how can our understanding of the creation story affect our lives? Hmm. Yeah. So I don't think I had other options available to me other than starting with Genesis 1 for this particular topic, right? The image of God is introduced in Genesis chapter 1, and so we have to talk about it. And Genesis 1 also happens to be one of the most hotly contested passages in the Bible that that really 
draws polarizing responses or polarized responses. So what I'm trying to, what I was trying to do as I wrote was to disarm people and to help by, by including humor. Um, I, I wanted to help people set down their weapons long enough. So, so we usually are fighting over how God made the world. How long did it take? What material did he use? Uh, or, or was there no material to be used, mm-hmm. right? So th- these are the questions that are embattled, but we often miss the underlying, and I think more important question of why did God make the world? What is, what is it here for? What are we here for? And that's actually the question that I think Genesis 1 is here to answer. So I'm encouraging people to set aside their deeply held convictions about how God made the world long enough so we can have a conversation about why. And I think that a young earth six-day creationist and a theistic evolutionist could both read this book and benefit from it. And I don't think either one would necessarily feel like they need to burn the book. That's what I was hoping for. <laughs> I've had I've had lots of practice with this in the classroom, right? Because I teach big classes of freshmen, <laughs> Old Testament, and w- the Old Testament happens to start with Genesis 1. So I feel right. this tension every semester. It's like, why do we have to start here? Why can't we right. like, st- and I've actually toyed with the idea of starting my Old Testament class in Genesis 12 with Abraham's call and running clear through to the end and then circling back around to the mm-hmm. beginning because it it does feel like we don't even know each other yet and we yeah. don't trust each other. So how is this, how is this going to work? Um and I, I hope that by wading into these waters, uh, hopefully respectfully, that that things that readers will be able to benefit no matter where they are on the spectrum. I want to talk about work. And you really bring this up in chapter three. Um, the You talk about the way humans are designed to work and mm. that we can express the image of God through the work that we do, which I mm. loved this idea. But I know for myself that it doesn't always feel that way. Sometimes mm. it just feels really hard. So I would love mm. your thoughts about where are some of the places humans get tripped up in our mm. work and what does it mm. mean for mm-hmm. us in our daily lives? Yeah, this was a hard section to write because I, I'm i convinced that our work matters, but I'm also convinced that our work doesn't make us matter, that we already have intrinsic dignity and value without doing anything. Yeah. And yet, if we just rest on and that alone, we could just sit back and miss out on what we're designed to do. So, so striking that balance between uh, seeing the value in work, but not making it the king of everything and not tying our our worth to it was the, was the tricky balance. And some of the earlier versions uh, of the book, some early readers were like, um, I feel like you're pulling in two directions. Like, well, yes, I kind of am because I want to say our work matters. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the work we do, whether it's uh, doing a sink full of dishes or writing a book, or composing a symphony, or digging a trench, these things matter, but they are not the source of our value or the source of our worth. So I was also cognizant as I was writing that not everyone is able to work in ways that they want to. So either not being able to get a job um, because of, for, for whatever reason, or having some kind of disability or life circumstance that makes it impossible to to work and 
that I wanted to take into consideration too. And, and somehow acknowledge that we don't all get to work. Working is a privilege. Yeah. So how do we talk about the way it matters without tying our identity to that completely? Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky. And you also mentioned the struggle of um, church and for women, the, the mm. ways that different churches have different views on women in leadership, which is something that we talk about on the podcast um, quite a mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd love for you to say a little bit more too about how you navigate engagement with your local church, even when you feel maybe at odds with some of the the decisions mm-hmm. or the st- the stance on women as leaders. I think this is a common issue for academic women, right? Because we have a venue in which we're hopefully invited to bring our full selves and we bring our expertise and we're respected and people call us doctor and we um we have the accolades that come with being in an academic place um, but then sometimes going to church can feel like we have to leave all that at the door and we can't bring our whole self and there are, there are fences and limitations on what we can do and contribute so this is this is a tricky issue uh, for all sorts of reasons um, autobiographically and, and theologically, and how can we be faithful to scripture and faithful to God's call in our life and exist in settings where maybe there's not a complete alignment, doctrinal alignment. Mm-hmm. Um, so university had at university press had asked me to write an article about my experience as a woman in the academy. And particularly if there were barriers that that I felt like had been difficult for me. And I'm not going to say it's been a complete cakewalk, but honestly, I feel like I've had so many men along the way who encouraged me, who advocated for me, who wrote recommendation letters, who gave me advice and, and helped me get where I am today. The place where I have felt more barriers has been in church. And so personally, that's been an area of, of kind of ongoing sadness or grief because I see what women can bring and I don't see it all being brought sometimes because women themselves are holding back and sometimes because church leaders are not welcoming contributions of women. So it part of what makes this tricky is that we have churches with constitutions or doctrinal statements or histories. Uh, and we, it, we, what I don't want is to come into a church like a bull in a china shop and try to tear everything up. I believe in the word of God. I believe in the authority of the word of God. I want to live my life in sub- submission to it. But there are Christians across the spectrum of views on this issue who are all trying to live in alignment with the word of God. And so an issue like can a woman speak in church or what precisely can she do or can't she do is um, very likely to have a range of opinions in any one church, even if there's a clarity in the doctrinal statement. Um, our own church has clarity around the issue of eldership. Women cannot be elders in our church, but it doesn't say that women can't preach. And yet, practically speaking, women have not been allowed to preach or invited to preach. And so that's one example of an issue where I felt like coming in, I can live with this doctrinal position because there's all of these other things about the church that really resonate with me like in so many ways um this is a place where i feel like our family can flourish and grow and be formed in christ likeness it seemed like there was openness maybe to women contributing 
sermons as well, because the, the doctrinal statement did not prohibit that. But I'm finding that the practical, the, the practice of the church makes it so that making a change in that area would require a lot of time to get people on board or to ne- to consider how to do it without uh, chasing people away who are also trying to be faithful to scripture. So that's that's tricky. I yeah. preach at other churches where I'm invited, but I, I'm not invited to preach at my church. And yet my church has made lots of room for women uh, doing more than what I see in other places. So women can host the service, serve communion, lead worship, uh, be on the prayer team, be on the missions council. So there, there are lots of ways that women can serve. And so, and so we stay because I, I still love our church and I believe that um, it's a place where God is at work. Um, it's hard. I feel like for academics, it's hard to find an exact match. Yeah. I don't know if it's, if it, if it feels that way to non-academics, cause I've never not been one, <laughs> but, but I feel like if I was just kind of like, well, I don't know about church doctrine, you know, I, I haven't studied this. Other people can tell me what the Bible says. That's one thing. But when you've poured your life yeah. into understanding Christian doctrine, and when you've devoted yourself to the study of scriptures, there are likely to be areas where you've, where you disagree yeah. on, on smaller issues. And so learning to, learning to live well in a community where there's not a hundred percent agreement is like a good skill for yeah. all of us to have. Yeah. Yeah, I hear I hear in your story the grief and sadness that you feel, but also a commitment to the church um that that goes beyond that and where you're yeah. leaning into continuing the conversation and um not just shutting people out yeah. because yeah. of a disagreement, which we need yeah. more of in our culture. Yeah. Yeah, I'm absolutely convinced that the church is and has always been plan A for God, that he that and this comes out of my work on bearing God's name. When he gathered the people of Israel at Sinai, he commissioned them to represent him to the nations. There was no other way through which he was going to make himself available to the nations like it's through the witness of the people of God. And so I don't think it actually works to just say this is too hard. I'm I'm heading out. I'm just yeah. going to be on my own. It's just me and Jesus. I I don't think that works theologically or practically. There's too much that the church is meant to be and do that cannot be accomplished on our own. Yeah. And so as fraught as the church can be with with problems, uh you know, there's all sorts of ways that the church has harmed and failed people, but I also think this is God's method. And he calls us to devote ourselves to it and to to keep growing so that we don't so that we're not a place of harm, but that yeah. we're a place where people can flourish. So yeah. Well, and you write about community in in being God's image. Um, you write about the gifts of community, um, saying that it's a way to experience our kinship with God as we participate in his mm-hmm. family. And you also, you go on to discuss ways that people suffer discrimination on the basis of race or ability. Mm. And these are really big topics. So um, I wonder how you would start to answer the question of what we can do to prioritize care for one another, especially Mm. in the face of those kinds of dehumanizing cultural Mm. forces. It's maybe Mm. even a step um, harsher, that, that kind of experience, than 
this experience of being a woman yeah. in church. Yeah. 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 I think we need to do a lot of listening mm. uh, because if we're, if we're not someone who experiences regular disability, we might not even be able to see what about our church or about our services are, is inaccessible. Yeah. So, so to stop and ask someone, tell me what it's like to be part of our church in a wheelchair uh, or, or to be part of our church as somebody who's on the spectrum. What, what do you wish, what, what doesn't work well for you? What, what would make this easier for you um, to fully participate and I, I, when I was in seminary at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, we had a seminar on disability, and it was really illuminating to me because we had an assignment where we were supposed to either interview someone with disability or, or uh, presume that disability and, and for a day. So if you're not in a wheelchair, like be a wheelchair user for a day and try to navigate your church, um, like go to a service and see what that's like. And, and it helps you suddenly see things. So, so I interviewed someone who was a wheelchair user and talked to her about her experience. And there were all sorts of little things that I'd never once thought of before. Like those who are wheelchair users often have really sore neck muscles from looking up at people in conversation. So if you're in conversation with them, sit down so that they can look wow. level with you. Or they often would get a crank in their neck if if there's nowhere to park the wheelchair that's not on an angle. And so many of our churches have sloped sanctuaries down to the front stage. And parking a wheelchair on a slope is then, inc it's incredibly difficult to sit in a wheelchair um, and hold that, that upper body strength that it takes is difficult. So that can easily be solved by finding a level place to put uh, seating for wheelchairs. Or she told me, it's really awkward and embarrassing when there's not an entrance that she can take with her wheelchair where everyone else is also going in. If she has to go around to the back of the church in some weird side hallway, then to rejoin, it's hard to have conversations and to keep those yeah. conversations going as the traffic flows. And so just thinking about where are the wheelchair ramps? Do you have wheelchair ramps? Where do they lead? Is there a wheelchair ramp that leads to your stage? Can, can a wheelchair user make it up to the platform in your church. And if not, what is that saying about what you're expecting from those who cannot walk? Are you expecting they have nothing to offer the right. church from up front? And so having that conversation with her was so eye-opening because there were all sorts of areas I'd never thought about. And I think the same is true with race. It And ask someone, you know, I've, I had a white student tell me once, you know, I think the small town that we lived in I don't really think they struggled with racism there because there was a family that moved in from, he was trying to tell me this was when I was in Canada. He was trying to tell me that racism is an American problem, not a Canadian problem. And um, he said, yeah, I lived in this small town and we had a family who moved in from India and they, they fit in great. It, th there was no issue. And my response to him was, I'm not sure that you're actually in a position to know whether there was any issues. Yeah. Like you didn't live their experience. Have you ever asked them what it was like to move into an all white rural Canadian town? Uh, he, and he was like, oh, I never thought of that. Like he just figured if he didn't notice a problem, then there wasn't a problem. Right. And I think that just points to the fact that we need intergenerational, interability, interracial friendships. And we need to do a lot of listening so that we can learn 
where are our blind spots and how can we address those? Well, let's talk about women in academic and professional contexts and how they can use this book. So Mm -hmm. this is um, a big question, but what ideas about being human and Mm -hmm. the image of God can teachers and professors take from this book Mm -hmm. as they seek to inspire their own students? Mm -hmm. Uh, so if if someone listening is a biblical studies professor, you can use this book in your classroom. Yeah. <laughs> um, if if you're teaching a course on integration of fields, this might be another good conversation starter because I've had to draw on a lot of different fields uh, for my reading and research here. And it, and because it it I don't see it as the final word on anything. Like if it's the final word on anything, it would be like how to understand the phrase that we're made as God's image and the way, you know, my, my conviction that every human being is the image of God and that status cannot be lost. That's like the core. But then as I'm working that idea out into all these other areas, I feel like there's so much room to do more exploration and more digging. And so this book could be a launching off point. I think of it maybe to use another metaphor, like a gateway drug (laughs) where somebody is, (laughs) is going to get their entry into, oh, look, there's all these areas to think about. And so maybe you could get your students hooked on the idea that theology matters and have them do projects that explore more deeply any of these issues. Mm -hmm. Um, But even just as a professor, I feel like um, reading this for your own personal development and, and your own thinking about theological integration. So if you are teaching in any other area in the sciences and the humanities, and you want ideas about how to integrate with theology, this book will give you connection points um, that you can point students back to, or it can just inform the way that you teach. The book could give you ideas of what we share as humans and then how to live that out, how to affirm the dignity of every other human and how to make space for human flourishing. I think um, I could see lots of ideas for for integration in in a wide variety of subjects. Well, and I think it comes through so beautifully in your book, the 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 way that you honor every human as mm-hmm someone who's made in the image of God and that, that, that sense of respect and dignity um, Mm -hmm. goes really a long way in caring for students and caring for Mm -hmm. colleagues in, Mm -hmm. um, in our work. So it's, it's a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful reminder about Mm -hmm. the work that we're doing. Mm. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. (laughs) Yeah, I really did. (laughs) Well, Carmen, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Can you say a little bit about how readers can follow you and your work and what's on the horizon for you? And I know you have a YouTube series. I do. Yeah. So I'm on Facebook and Twitter. I'm pretty easy to find in both places. And I do have a YouTube channel. And every Tuesday, I release a video uh, called Torah Tuesday. It's basically, it was a pandemic idea when the whole world was on lockdown and yeah. we couldn't travel anymore and all my trips got canceled and I was working, I be, was beginning work on a commentary on Exodus for Baker academic. And I felt like I was learning cool things every day and I wanted people to hear it. I didn't want them to have to wait five or six years to buy the commentary. I wanted to start helping people with what I was learning right away. So I thought, what if I did short homey YouTube videos from my office and just tell people what I'm learning. I wonder if anyone would be interested. 
And now over 6,000 people have subscribed. So a few people so are interested. And, um, and so I'm continuing that process. I'm on, um, in my writing, I'm on Exodus 14. And in my YouTube channel, I'm on Exodus 9. We're right in the, what's traditionally called the 10 plagues, which I call the 12 signs and wonders, because I think there's more than 10. <laughs> so, um, so I think this week is the, the plague on livestock. Um, that it's the only one in the series in Exodus that's actually called a plague. So I go ahead and call it a plague. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's very nerdy. If there's anybody nerdy out there who just wants little nuggets from Hebrew uh, in an accessible format. Carmen's writing and teaching display her research in wonderfully accessible ways. And this book is no exception. We didn't even get a chance in this interview to talk about her explanation of some of the ideas in Ecclesiastes. Her writing in chapter six on this topic helped me to make sense of that book for really the first time in my life. I hope you pick up a copy of Being God's Image. You can use the discount code 40IVCF23 for 40% off and free U.S. shipping at University Press. I'll put that in the show notes too. Carmen also wanted to say that if you're in the market for some further study, consider applying to Biola University. She loves it there and says her colleagues are amazing. And if you listen to the end of the credits, you'll get to hear a bonus from our podcast where Carmen shares a tip for busy family life. The Women Scholars and Professionals podcast is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in on this excerpt from my conversation with Carmen. So my kids are at a pretty independent stage now. My my baby is almost 15 and my oldest is long out of the house, 22. Um, so I the example that comes to mind is back from our PhD days at Wheaton uh, when we had three kids, preschool, elementary school, middle school, it just felt like there was so much. I, I didn't want, there was so much going on in their lives and so much going on in my life and I didn't want to miss out. So we carved up our family responsibilities in such a way that my time with them was maximized. So not everybody has a spouse like my husband who is willing to do this, but he, he did all the food prep during the day while I was at the library so that when I came home, I didn't have to cook dinner. I could just pop it in the oven and it was all prepared so that I could focus on the kids. But maybe the most practical suggestion that would work maybe for others is with three kids, we decided that the hour after dinner would be divided into 20 minute time slots. And I'd have 20 minutes with each kid, just one-on-one -on -one giving them my full attention. I'm not on my phone. I this was actually before I was even, I even had social media. So there was no other distractions. It was just, okay, it's you and me. What do you want to do with mom today? So we'd sometimes go for a walk around the block. 
we'd play a game of Uno or do a puzzle. Um, maybe we'd go on a rapid date. <laughs> There's some easy, easy, quick dates in Wheaton, like grab some popcorn from the popcorn shop or some ice cream from campus um, or, or do some read aloud together or, or whatever. So it's something that was focused on them and it was their choice what to do. And then I move on to the next kid. And so my husband then also rotated with them and whoever wasn't with mom or dad was getting ready for bed. So Mm -hmm. it was, it worked. I mean, it it sounds maybe sort of hyper scheduled, but it actually helped me feel connected with each of my kids through those years. Yeah. Which was a real gift. That kind of intentionality can really work. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. I don't think it would work now. (laughs) Like I don't, like I have a, I have a sophomore and a senior in high school and I, I don't know if they would want to do that, but but I, I will say that my son, who's almost 15, still loves to go for walks with mom. He almost never says no, even if he's playing video games. Like, hey, you want to go for a walk? He's like, oh, sure. And he just hops up and we go for a walk and he talks uh, about his day and we talk about whatever. So that's that's really still fun. 